The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. It would be great if there was an organization somewhere that would challenge environmental extremism in an exciting and dynamic way, a way that would grab media attention across the world. Jay, does such a kind of group actually exist today? It definitely does. And I'm very fortunate to be a part of it. As you know, I was science director for the Heartland Institute for 25 years, and they did a terrific job. But uh, when I decided to leave Heartland a few weeks later, the president of CFAC, the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow, Craig Rucker, asked me to write some articles every week for them. Well, this is over three years ago. And it was an introduction to me for the greatest source of being up to date on science and climate and environmental issues. I became a, a part of writing for it. And then I was reading it every single day and finding there was nothing that I didn't learn from the website. And the neatest thing was I learned from people uh, smarter than me in every imaginable issue. So it's become uh, my go-to source for information every day. And my goal in this program with uh, our 20,000 listeners that I will recruit many of them to start their day or at some time of their day, go to cfact.org and see all the new articles that are posted. Sometimes as many as a dozen or more a day, they're short to the point uh, it's just an amazing source of information, and it's going to be fun uh, now learning more about the organization. So, Tom, go ahead and introduce our guest. Yeah, sure, Jay. Our guest this week is Craig Rucker, president of the Washington, D.C.-based Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow at CFAC.org. Craig founded CFAC in 1985 with David Rothbard. He has helped build many parts of the organization, including the student branch of CFAC, which is called Collegians for a Constructive Tomorrow. I should also point out that they run Climate Depot. And it's interesting that I actually met Mark Morano for the first time in 2009. Mark Morano runs Climate Dep Depot. I met him at the Copenhagen Climate Conference. And Mark is such a brave character. <laughs> we actually got into the official UN Media Center because, well, they let us in. And wow, that caused kind of a commotion because we weren't on their side. <laughs> so that's fun. Craig and Mark are an incredible team. In 2018, Craig dressed up as Al 
Al Gore. And he led a march in San Francisco in response to the Global Climate Action Summit that was occurring in San Francisco at the time. Other people were dressed up with him as zombies and had name tags reading, United Nations Media, Hollywood. <laughs> they then broke into the conference center and chanted different climate myths. And Craig was saying as part of the protest, climate models have never been right. Well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> in 2013, in response to the proposed United Nations action on climate change, Craig Rucker wrote an article that said the following, and it sums up really a lot of what they do. CFAC is committed to educating the public and exposing global warming for what it truly is, a massive redistribution scheme. This scheme is not designed to help the U.S. economy but to throttle it down, oh, that's for sure. Well, Craig studied politics and economics at the University of Albany, uh, State University of New York, and he currently lives in Berryville, Virginia, although he grew up in Buffalo, New York. So welcome to the show, Craig. Oh, well, thank you very much for that splendid introduction, Tom. Uh, your check's in the mail afterward. <laughs> yeah. The fact that CFAC started in 1985 really makes uh, you a fairly senior environmental slash energy group. What launched the original idea between you and David Rothbard? Wow. Yes, you are right. I am becoming a senior environmentalist, I guess, by virtue of age. Uh, thanks for that reminder, Jay. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, yes, we started it actually out of college. And um, some people sometimes ask me, go, Greg, why did you start this organization? And they'll say, well, nobody would hire me. Well, that's not actually true. I, uh, I worked for a while. I was in the military. I also worked in uh, New York state politics for a bit. I uh, had some you know, employment in the New York State Assembly and Senate for a little bit, then came down to D.C. And uh, one of the things I did early on while I was in college and then went to graduate school was challenge a group known as Pub Ralph Nader's Public Interest Research Groups, or PERGs. I sued Ralph Nader. Uh, he had a scheme whereby if you went to certain public universities, not just in New York, but across the country, uh, you had to pay a mandatory fee to his organization as part of being a student. And his organization was a lobbying outfit. And I, I, I took exception to that because he didn't lobby for me. He didn't really even yeah. lobby at all on student issues. It all had to do with his brand of consumerism and environmentalism. And uh, as a result of my antics of taking him on, causing protests on a campus at the State University of New York at Albany, people in Washington noticed that, asked me to come down and say, hey, Craig, do you want to do this all across the nation? We'll give you some money to do it. And uh, so I, it was too tempting not to take. So I literally became an activist for a few years, running around the country, uh, challenging Ralph Nader, who called me a young American for fascism and uh, defunded a number of these campuses. Uh, once the money dried up for that, and uh, it, it dawned on David Rothbard and I, because David is the one who actually called me down to DC. He was working for something called the USA Foundation. He said, Craig, you know, there really isn't an alternative on the conservative slash libertarian side that handles environmental issues. And I said, you know, that's actually true. I grew up in a rural area in upstate New York. I hunted. Uh, my house was heated by wood. I was in, um, you know, part of my job was to chop wood and bring it into the house. And we, you know, it was just a rural lifestyle. And uh, if you look at those that are most interested in environmental issues, there are people like that. There are people who live closer to nature. They're in the rural areas. And 
really Greenpeace, Sierra Club, they don't really advocate for the values that we grew up on. So that's what kind of form, you know, formulated the idea of let's start a group like that. So we put together a bunch of policy experts because we didn't have the expertise entirely in that. I was more of a general politician type person and um, created the organization and it took off from there. As always, I learned so much on this show from our guests, but there are three rather amusing things that you said that figure in my life. You joked about not being able to find a job. So you did this. That actually happened to me. I uh, have the very first PhD in groundwater hydrology from the University of Arizona, and I couldn't find a job. Nobody knew what that was. So the university hired me to teach for a while. Uh, The second thing is people have just heard the name Ralph Nader probably for the first time in a decade. Uh, Happily, he's out of the the news. He was certainly one of the very worst uh, radical environmentalists socialist, communist, whatever you want to call him, but he was a major mover and shaker 30 years ago. And the third point is I still cut wood and heat my house with wood uh, 100% all through the winter. We got a cold winter. I hope I have enough wood to get us into uh, April, but it's a wonderful way to live. Let me ask you, what was CFAC's initial goals as an organization? I mean, did you Did you write down some kind of mandate or how did you go about uh, deciding in a more specific way what you were going to try to accomplish? Well, we have as a mission statement to enhance the, what we call it, the fruitfulness of the earth and all its inhabitants. That means the betterment of the earth and all its inhabitants. That sounds kind of grandiose because, well, it is. But essentially, we uh, feel that the environmental groups tend to treat people as pollution as though they aren't really, uh, they're, they're the problem with the environment. And the solution is really just to limit them, limit their impacts on the environment, limit their activities, uh, and limit them just in numbers. So our, our viewpoint is radically different than that. We think people are a blessing on the earth. We think that uh, they're part of the natural world. And in fact, any solution that's gonna happen must include the betterment of mankind. So that was kind of our philosophy, if you would, that was driving us, which to me really is the American ethos. I know, Tom, you're in Canada, so it's a Canadian ethos, too. And uh, I I think that what we're finding with the modern green movement, and really it started before my time in the 1960s, where really conservation got derailed to a large extent uh, with this green, deep uh, conservation biology uh, teaching uh, that is still plaguing it today on the international level, national level, and all that is a very anti-human viewpoint. And that's kind of philosophically what we're battling against. And I think on the terms of our early issues, uh, we focused on some interesting ones that aren't in the spotlight anymore, things like food irradiation, uh, which we thought was a good technology to clean up our food supply. Uh, We focused a lot on uh, ozone depletion, which was to us a precursor to the global warming theory, acid rain. And then when uh, Hansen made his famous proclamation in 1988 that, you know, we're going to have, he's 90, what was it, 98% certain the globe is going to burn up or something. We, we jumped on that issue as well. Little knowing at that time that climate would become the biggest issue of all of them. 
Mm-hmm. Well, interesting that you say that humans are part of nature. I always ask the environmentalists, well, if they're not part of nature, does that mean we're supernatural? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously we're part of nature. It's ridiculous at the point of view they take. And you know, Craig, surely many of the original environmentalists, they were conservative, right? Absolutely. And in fact, I think uh, to a large degree, it was reflective of our kind of Judeo-Christian heritage that, uh, you know, taught that man was made in the image of God. And uh, to be honest with you, we, we kind of hold to that to a large degree, that man is special in the creative order. I mean, David Foreman, uh, radical uh, earth first person, one time said if he had a chance between saving the life of a person or saving that of a grizzly bear, he would choose the grizzly bear. Uh, I might agree with him. It depends on which person we're talking about. <laughs> but um, for the most part, that's a pretty easy choice for most people. Of course, we'd save the people, but he he valued grizzly bears more than people. And I, I just think that that's part of the misplaced ethos that's driving the whole agenda on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, th- and they say that the world would be better off without humans. I mean, that's, that's yeah, really no question. Uh, you know, I'm... Uh, I feel so honored to be uh, part of CFACT and I get to write essays uh, every week for the site. How do you recruit so many amazing people uh, to write for you? Or is it more obvious that everybody wants to get on your site because it's so well regarded and there are so many terrific uh, authors on the site? Tell us about that. Well, uh, believe me, the feeling's mutual. We feel very privileged to have you and your writing on there, Jay. It's always really popular with our uh, audience and uh, you as well, Tom. I think you've appeared on there numerous times as well. Um, So we appreciate the input. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are like yourself. And um, I think that they reach out to us because there aren't a lot of vehicles out there to get that message out there. So one of the things we've always tried to make it a point of is, You'll get a lot of organizations, let's say the Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute, they produce lots of studies. Uh, It's been our impression early on, these studies are fantastic, but we have to put them in human speak uh, in order to get them widely distributed. Now, granted, they have big outreaches and big arms, bigger than ours to get it out, but they're on a whole plethora of subjects. Ours is very much devoted to energy, environment, climate, those types of issues. So, uh, we try very hard to get our people to speak in human speak, uh, take away the X factor talk and a lot of the scientific dialogue. And uh, so that's why, uh, you know, I think we've never really had a problem recruiting people. Uh, we've always had people, you know, saying, hey, please share our stuff. And so, you know, we welcome that. In fact, if anybody's listening here, they have credentials and feel they have some expertise in these issues contact us. You know, we're always looking for new, new writers, uh, especially ones that write in engaging ways, like, like Tom and like you do, Tom and Jay. And, uh, and I, I, I think we're just seeing the beginning of it. I'm, I'm optimistic. We're going to see a lot more, particularly younger writers coming along on these issues. One of the things I find neat about the CFAC site is when I get an article up there with Jay or on my own, there are lots of comments afterwards. So you know people are reading and they're discussing and everything else. So, I mean, that's part of the dyna- dynamism of CFAC is that you get people involved. It's not just published and then everyone ignores it. I want to tell our listeners that if they go to CFAC.org, I guarantee their eyes will not glaze over reading any of the articles. And as you point out, Craig, these long 
studies that other big organizations put out, uh, I think very few people get past the executive summaries. Uh, essentially, all of our articles are like executive summaries. I, I know I work to keep my articles short and understandable, and I've uh, rarely failed in that uh, regard. Don't want to get in the weeds. So again, I just want to repeat to our listeners, if you want uh, an easy reads, very clear, and will spread your knowledge, increase your knowledge on every imaginable environmental and energy issue. And, you know, it's funny because I get uh, I, I talk with others. I'm friends with James Taylor at Heartland. I'm friends with, uh, you know, Lastman over at CEI and all the different people that run the other organizations. They're very concerned a lot of times about accuracy. We are, too. But I always joke with my writers and, and to ask them the first most fundamental question we have. Obviously, we want you to put out accurate information, but I always ask them, are you having fun? And if they answer incorrectly and say they're not having fun, then I say we have an issue here because if you're not enjoying what you're putting down and and uh, and you're getting some fulfillment and and having some sort of rush, that's not going to entice anybody else to listen to a word you have to say. We want to see some enthusiasm, some motion, humor, uh, but get the message out there in a way that uh, that you can communicate that other people are interested in hearing. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, it really does no good. Well, you know, Mark Morano, I guess. He's probably one of your best examples of exactly that approach. I mean, how did you get him to come over? I mean, that was quite a catch to get him as your director of communications. <laughs> it was cigars that did it. That's how I met a lot of these people. Uh, James Taylor and Mark Morano. Actually, that's true in a way. Um, one of the things CFAC did early on was go to a lot of these international summits around the world. And I would meet... Um, uh, people like Mark Morano, who at that time was working for the, well, I met him initially for uh, working for the CNS News Service, but then he worked for the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And uh, whenever we would jet to Kenya or South Africa, or maybe it'd be in Indonesia or whatnot, we would look each other up because we're about the same age and we would go have cigars someplace. Because uh, <laughs> And that's how we kind of met. So drinking whiskey, smoking cigars, we got to be friends. Uh, eventually, when the Democrats took over the uh, Congress in 2006, they were going to shut him up. He was very effective as a spokesman at uh, working under Inhofe, uh, but they were shutting down his website. He was panicking. He wasn't going to be able to get the message out. He, he basically came to me and said, Craig, would you hire me? And I said, <laughs> oh, yeah, I would. I, you know, I knew his style. And uh, a lot of people criticize that at first. They said, you know, here he is. He has a platform working for the U.S. Senate. There's a little bit of gravitas that comes with that. Uh, you're going to work for CFAC? I mean, this is just a small public policy group. Uh, you're making a big mistake, Mark. Mark, if he was on this program today, in fact, I'd encourage you to have him on at some point, would tell you it was the best decision of his life. He's huh. won awards. He's gone on all the major media. It has not done anything uh, but uh, he just has sheer enjoyment working for it. We made two movies with him, Climate Hustle 1 and oh, Climate yeah. Hustle 2. Uh, we now have the Murano Minute going out each week, which is this kind of one-minute uh, broadcast. And, uh, you know, we got him having fun, poking fun at the left. Sometimes he'll dress up as an Army officer, another time as a hippie, you know. we try, But we get a point across. It's not just all joking around, but... We like to have fun well, in that kind of sort of communication. Uh, uh, Tom mentioned his first uh, meeting with Mark Morano, and mine was very interesting. A few years ago, 
when I was still with Heartland, an anonymous donor funded a lecture tour for me in Australia, all about climate change. I must have given uh, at least 15 lectures uh, there for a couple of weeks. And I had the good fortune a week before I left for Australia to be in the audience when Mark gave an absolute brilliant lecture on the climate change fraud. And I boldly went up to him afterwards and I said, your uh, slides, your PowerPoint that you showed was absolutely amazing. Would you loan it to me? I'm off literally to Australia this week and it would help me in my lectures. And Mark did not hesitate to say absolutely, uh, gave it to me with his blessings and made my lecture tour that much uh, more effective. Let me ask you, it's 37 years now by my count that you have been operating CFAC. Uh, has it changed much in those 37 years? We have grown. We actually have a staff now. But I think a general thrust, no. I'd say the biggest thing that's changed is our, our my co- the co-founder that I founded this with was a guy named David Rothbard. And he tragically passed away in 2018 from cancer. And uh, it was kind of a duo between him and I running it. Now it's fallen on my shoulders to basically carry the mantle here. So uh, in that regard, it's changed uh, a little bit in terms of leadership and uh, maybe a little bit in terms of style. David was always a little more the careful one, and I was a much more the reckless one. So I don't know why the good Lord decided to let the reckless one now run the shop. But uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's so it's probably changed character a little bit in that regard. But overall, no, our still mission, the types of people we have, we have a wonderful staff. Uh, it's great to meet people like you, Tom and Jay. And uh, you know that you know the crew that we hang out with at these Heartland gatherings, for example, at the International Conference on Climate Change and some of the other D.C. meetings. Uh, it's been nothing but a treat. Well, who are some of the key people on your staff? I'm sure your listeners would would like to know. We know it's a small staff that accomplishes mega things, but uh, who are the key people with you? You've mentioned Mark, yourself, who else? Yeah, I would say the other uh, key people include a guy named Michael Getz. He's an attorney. Uh, He's the one who actually posts the material on the website. He's also in charge of our Facebook page, which is also quite engaging and uh, has quite a number of comments underneath each post. You'll notice if you go there, likes and and comments. We really don't care about how many follow. We care more about engagement. So uh, I'm pretty proud of our Facebook page posting. Now, we also have a active collegians program, field coordinators, a guy named Bob, and he uh, uh, is absolutely incredible going around the campuses and organizing things. We have another executive kind of director named Adam who helps him, actually directs and, and uh, is responsible out of Adam Hauser. And uh, he also uh, testifies, writes, just uh, a kind of a jack of all trades, which you kind of have to be in this uh, organization. Uh, we have another one, Christina Norman. She works uh, as our development director, but also does a lot of our creative stuff. We also have a number of uh, other people that are kind of employees, Paul Dreesen, Bonner Cohen. These are writers for us, but also do special projects. Paul mostly on energy, Bonner mostly on environmental issues. Uh, We have Gabriella Hoffman, and she's our newest addition. And she uh, works principally on outdoor issues. Uh, It could be gun rights, but a lot of it deals with hunting, 
this uh, Biden 30 by 30 plan. So we're kind of using her to uh, fill that gap. She just interviewed just the other day, Christy Nome from South Dakota, and we have that up on our website. She also puts together a, a good podcast that you can go on each day called District of Conservation. Apple actually broadcasts it. Just put District of Conservation under Apple uh, Podcasts, and it should come up. I'm hearing from some professors that there are increasing number of young people who are absolutely fed up with the woke stuff. I mean, it's being rammed down their throat all through high school. And do you find that we're seeing increasing numbers of young people thinking for themselves on that sort of thing? You do. Uh, and I think that the left is themselves concerned. Uh, I'll be going down to CPAC and uh, our table should be staffed by our collegians, but there are others that are being funded by the likes of the Steyers and um you know, some of those on the left that are trying to use environmental issues, Green New Deal, climate change, uh, because they feel that the young people have been well, you know, indoctrinated by this in their high in their college, cl- college classes, high school classes, elementary school, actually, in many cases, that this is could be a wedge issue for them. And I would say as recent as about six years ago, I was equally concerned because there was uh, seemingly a lot of people going the wrong direction. To Donald Trump's uh, credit, he had a big impact on the next generation. And we are not finding a whole lot of people that trust the Greens, uh, thanks in large part to the example of the president. And uh, the recruiting has been just wonderful in the last couple of years. So uh, climate change continues to be a concern because, again, Uh, You're not allowed to really, in most school systems, present any opposing view, but it doesn't take much. It's kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. We we have an aggressive program going out this year to go against organizations that have cropped up, like the American Conservation Coalition and the Republican, like Republicans for the Environment, that have uh, cropped up in recent years to try and draw young people toward the the environmental left. Craig, years ago, I remember getting a steady stream of fundraising letters when uh, David Rothberg was the, uh, the president. And I'm not seeing that. What is your fundraising program to keep all these terrific people working uh, with CFACT? Uh, we probably were right around $3 million annually. That's about where our budget is, uh, which puts us quite a bit uh, lower than some of the other groups on our side. But, you know, it's been going pretty good. And we've seen increases. That's, you know, we've probably grown, you know, I'd say 50% in the last three, four years. I'm seeing, again, a lot of people starting to come to our side and the uh, donations are flowing in. Unlike a lot of other groups, uh, we do not have a big sugar daddy or two. We don't have a, a Steyer or the equivalent of that or a Coke on our side. Uh, we really are grassroots run. Uh, every, every dime we get is pretty much either from direct mail, online contributions, and that sort, 96% thereabouts. Only about 4% come from any sort of companies, and I would say maybe another 10% come from foundations. So, you know, we're, we are totally uh, captive, and as a result of that, there's a plus and a minus to it. If you get a big sugar daddy, as some of these groups do, you kind of have to listen to what they say, but because of the fact ours, is, we're playing to the crowd. So uh, we listen to, we have our, you know, ear to what the public thinks is important because they're the ones, you know, buttering our bread. So well, let me make it, let me make it clear to our listeners, you know, many websites require a a subscription. You've got to pay some money 
the website, cfac.org, with all the great articles every day, fresh and new, is entirely free. And I think uh, many of our listeners who will, starting tomorrow, go to cfac.org and see what a phenomenal source of information it is, may be become uh, small contributors, as, uh, as you point out. <laughs> On that note, I guess we better break for a commercial. And so when we get back, I'd like to ask you about parachuting into a UN COP meeting, Craig. Are you, can you talk about that with us after the break? Absolutely. Okay. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy, and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. We're here with Craig Rucker from CFAC, Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. And I wanted to ask Craig about parachuting into a UN climate meeting just a few years ago. I mean, how did that come about? That sounds pretty pretty crazy, but exactly what's needed to get attention. Oh, yeah. Well, we were inspired by Jay. Uh, he, he, you parachute, right, Jay? Yes, 42 years. Yeah, there you go. Now, actually, I would like to say it was a result of our, you know, high respect for Jay and his tales of parachuting that inspired it, but it wasn't entirely. What happened was, is that <laughs> one of the things CFAC likes to do is stunts. Uh, we'll go to UN conferences. We boarded Greenpeace ships and dropped banners off them. Uh, and sometimes we'll walk right into a conference like we did in Morocco and put up a big uh, picture of Donald Trump, a life-size thing of oh, Donald I Trump remember, yeah, and shred the Paris that. Treaty. So we were look, yeah, we were looking for something 
kind of amusing because uh, what was going on at that particular time was something called Climate Gate 2. Of course, the uh, Climate Gate uh, original scandal took place in 2009. And uh, we were also able to do some things there. But uh, when the second one came out, the media really wasn't paying attention to it. So we said, how can we draw attention to it? And somebody came up with the idea of skydiving, have some people with banners behind them fly near the conference and uh, put up stuff about Climate Gate 2. So we actually touched base with some South African uh, pilots who said uh, they would do it for us. But then in the course of doing it, they said, hey, if you guys want to join us, you can do it. And I said, really? And uh, they said, yes. And I was a little bit ashamed by our CFAC crew because I think we had about seven of us there. And I, I just assumed my entire crew would go. But the only ones who went were Lord Moncton, Christina Norman, uh, Kelvin Kem, and myself. So there's like three or four uh, CFAC people that wouldn't do that. And I, I actually cut their pay after that. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not participating. Uh, sure enough, it worked like it worked like a charm because the minute that we did this, it was not the second or third or page or whatever, but in the Durban newspapers in South Africa, there was front page coverage of us parachuting in that wow. day. Could not be missed. It was on local television. Uh, it was everywhere. And uh, we were able with these banners to do a little press conference after we landed. We actually took the banners, had some uh, students hold them. And uh, Mark Morano and myself did a little press conference right there. And it just worked like a charm. So as a result of that, uh, we also done cliff. What do you call that? Where you go, jump off a cliffs with a glider kind of. Uh, off of base jumping. Yes, we did that in uh, the Andes Mountains in Peru, and uh, it's been a few years, so I'm kind of getting an inkling. Maybe we ought to revisit that again at some point. Most of our listeners have seen the Army parachute group, the Golden Knights, jump into major football games and, and major things, and it may look simple. It's really terrifying to think that you had people that made their first jump into a situation like that. Uh, I've been jumping 42 years, and I hold what's called a record for stupidity. Uh, I jumped in central Ohio every single month for 34 years and 11 months before a bicycle accident. Uh, it cost me three, uh, three months of, of jumping, but that's 35 winters, not missing a, a December, January, and February. But I can really describe the experience as follows. One day I'm getting dressed to make a jump and a, a young girl was there uh, getting fitted up to make her first jump. And she asked me, when did I get over my fear of skydiving? And I said, young lady, if you'll give me your telephone number, I'll call you when I get over <laughs> my fear of skydiving. It's always there. Yeah, it I, is. I, I actually had a little experience, but not at skydiving. Uh, before this incident, but of uh, I was in the military and did do, I got my wings and did parachute. But in that particular case, you had what's called a static line where your chute automatically opened after like five seconds, if I remember correctly. And uh, so I kind of got used to it back in the 80s, but it'd been a while. So, uh, but this is actually to me something that uh, goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think it's important that our side has a little fun with it. Uh, I'm not talking the type of fun that Black Lives Matter has or Antifa, where you're actually doing something destructive, but poking fun at the other side, having a sense of humor, 
I uh, encourage our students to do the same thing. You know, I wish there would be more on our side that would uh, would do something like that. It's a little bit uh, uncomfortable, especially in the conservative side. They're just not used to doing that. I, I think it's I think it's impactful. People remember that. Yeah, you know, it's funny the jumping of uh, Lord Monkton. I mean, that was quite exciting. Can you tell us how you got Lord Monkton, Christopher Monkton from the UK? How did you get him on your team? Because he's quite a dynamic character. Well, he kind of uh, became a part of our team. Uh, that was in 2013, where he jumped out with us, and and there was no holding him back. The minute that the uh, parachutist said that you guys could jump, uh, he he stepped forward. I think he was first. In fact, him and I were the first two out, and he insisted he go before me. So uh, I thought that was kind of curious. I had to jump second. Uh, but uh, before that, uh, Lord Moncton came into our crew in in Indonesia. I think we were in Bali, Indonesia. And I had read a lot of his writings, was very impressed with him. He was familiar with us. He actually needed to get into the conference, and we let him in as a CFAC representative. Of course, flying to Bali is not a short thing. It takes like 20-some hours to get over there. By the time I got over there, and he had already been there for a couple of days before I got there, uh, my first call was by the UN officials telling me that uh, I was going to get kicked out of the conference because of some of the stuff he was doing. I had no <laughs> idea what he was doing, but... He had apparently held impromptu press briefings without getting the right certification. Well, Craig, our, our, our audience needs to know that uh, Moncton was Margaret Thatcher's uh, science advisor. I mean, he was high up in uh, the British government when Margaret Thatcher was there. What was his actual title with her? Do you recall? Uh, he had something to do with science. I can't actually say what it was, but he was like a science advisor to Margaret Thatcher. Yeah from what I remember. And so when he got there, he was getting us in trouble. I got called down. The woman's name was Barbara Black, the UN Nazi that kind of kept all the NGOs in line and kind of said, Mr. Rucker, you're going to be out of here, blah, 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 blah. I hadn't even met the guy and he was getting us kicked out of the conference, but I knew at that point I was going to like him. So (laughs) (laughs) when I did meet up with him, it's been wonderful. We then took him to a number of different uh, locations until he permanently got kicked out in Doha, Qatar, by entering into the uh, conference, the actual what they call the plenary session where all the nations meet, sat down in Myanmar's chair and actually said that the conference ought to be discontinued because there is no man, you know, threat to mankind from climate change. They escorted him out and we weren't allowed to bring him back after that, but we've remained friends to this day. I still admire his work, and he remains uh, somebody that we we think very highly of. Well, you know, the thing I find amazing about him is that he seems to be a Renaissance man. He seems to understand in depth many of these topics that, in fact, the specialists only understand one or two of them. He seems to understand a whole slew of them. I mean, there must be five of him. There has got to be, because how could one person learn all that? <laughs> oh, and I, I'm in agreement. But what we liked about him wasn't just his breadth of knowledge, because you can find that in a lot of people on our side, maybe not his knowledge, but I'm just saying, uh, you know, very intelligent people. But what was making to why Mark Morano, myself, David Rothbard really liked working with Christopher is his style of communication was just excellent. He would he had a wit. Everywhere he went, a crowd gathered, and uh, he was able to communicate things in such a way that uh, it would have you laughing, but he would make his point, and uh, so he was just very impactful. uh, Craig, you're talking a lot in the past tense here. Let's make it clear. He's alive and well. 
in the in yeah. the UK. Oh, and I and I apologize for that. Yes, I'm just talking about our ability to work as closely right. with him today as it was well, in the past. Yeah, he's everything you said. Now you have made uh, two movies. I think Climate Hustle One, Climate Hustle Two, that a lot of our listeners might enjoy seeing. Tell us about uh, how the movies came about and how people can get to uh, see them. And maybe a little bit of, I understand the Australian star, uh, Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, he's not Australian. He's American. Um, oh, is he? Oh, yeah. he must have been in a in some kind of miniseries in Australia. He was, and he actually okay. did the miniseries. I could see the confusion. The miniseries was Hercules, and that was filmed actually in New Zealand. So okay. uh, people sometimes think of him as being from over there, but he's actually American. He went to the University of Minnesota, of all things, and uh, he remains a good friend. But essentially what happened in the first thing is that, uh, of course, Al Gore had his famous uh, movie called An Inconvenient Truth. And we really didn't have a retort for that on our side, but we figured let's try to put one together on one fraction of the budget of what he had. And uh, so that was kind of the genesis of it. Uh, we made it amusing, and our first movie um, was promoted by Sarah Palin, among others, and uh, actually was able to garner attention on The Tonight Show, on uh, Variety Magazine, a bunch of other things. And it wound up being the number one movie for one night in 2016, actually supplanting My Big Fat Greek Wedding and Superman versus Batman. Oh, and uh, wow. we were kind of proud of it. We called it edutainment, where we combined information with humor and Mark Morano was the host of it and he delivered it excellently. Uh, because of the success of that, we decided to do a second one. Now the first movie was mostly focused on the science of climate change. We called it climate hustle because we wanted to convince the public that they're being hustled on the science. The natural next question we thought people would ask is why would anyone want to hustle us? Hence, uh, that was kind of the theme of the second movie, Climate Hustle 2. And in that, we went into the uh, money that is being generated by renewable energy and all that, the Hollywood hypocrisy, some of the power grabbing and the uh, desire for more governmental control. Uh, so we tried to showcase uh, some of the antics that are behind the scenes that are driving this issue. Uh, we got a, an added communicator in this. It was suggested to us that Kevin Sorbo would might be a good host. So we uh, talked to him and he agreed. And uh, of course we did pay him, but uh, he was reasonable because he agreed with the cause. So uh, and he did a spectacular job. So this one had both Mark Morano and uh, Kevin Sorbo was slated to be released actually because of the success of the first movie in like 800 theaters in 2020. Uh, but right in the midst of that, of course, COVID hit and we weren't able to do a uh, theatrical release of it. We had to console ourselves with doing it online, which we did, and it did very well. It literally got around the world and uh, continues to sell, even really to this day. Mm -hmm. Some of our listeners would like to see it. Where would they go to see it? They can go to our website. Oh, well, they can go to uh, climatehustle.com or climatehustle2.com, or they can go to the CFACT, that's C-F-A-C-T.org. They can also find it at climatedepot.com. So any one of those ways, either on our website, cfact.org, you'll see a banner ad there that you can just click and get your copy. And you can watch it either by DVD ordering one, or you can watch it right online. How long a movie is it? About an hour and a half. It was a lot of fun making it too. And um, 
You know, I will say uh, we got a little bit of media censorship that really hurt us the second time around that was not there in 2016. Uh, we were able to get it on Amazon Prime, on a bunch of different of the social media outlets. Uh, we had, uh, you know, just great success at that time. But unfortunately, because of the uh, crackdown by social media on anything that dissents from the woke politically correct opinion, we weren't able to get the second one on. And in fact, they even went so far as to remove the first one. And it wasn't just us. I mean, there was a lot of other conservatives that they removed on other issues as well. So uh, that's been a that's been a little bit of a something that we've had to overcome. And uh, you know, if we do a third movie, which I suspect we will at some point in the future, uh, we'll have to make that part of our plan as to how you can actually distribute it. Given that so many of the big companies are now hell bent to shut down any position that's conservative, libertarian, or sound science. Mm -hmm. Craig, I think the public is waking up to this. Uh, You really have to be uh, from another planet to not be aware today that conservative messages are being censored on social media. And I think it's going to have a huge impact in the midterm election uh, next November. I really believe every morning another few thousand Americans wake up being aware of the mistake that uh, we made in electing these uh, liberal Marxists uh, in this administration, and that we're going to see a a big swing, and the censorship is going to play a major role in convincing people that uh, they backed the wrong horse. Well, and that, uh, you know, is correct. I mean, at least to some of the more important issues that we're working on today at CFAC, one of them is to go after some of the social media giants for violating our freedom of speech, which is really something that is, you know, it's in in our constant, it's in our uh, declaration of independence. It's in our constitution that, uh, you know, that these are endowed by our creator and uh, you know, they, no company should have the right to be able to, to censor that. And I think that um, uh, there's other issues that we're working on. A lot of it's something called environmental social governance grants, a lot of the companies are being pressured to go anti-fossil fuel or go Green New Deal uh, based on their ESG scoring. So we've been involved in shareholder meetings and speaking out against that. We purchased a bunch of shares to be able to participate in these hearings. Wow. And um, so that's another big issue that we're working on. Uh, continue to work on the college campuses. And tomorrow, uh, we're also very involved. In fact, uh, tomorrow I'll be testifying in Richmond in Virginia against the Virginia Clean Economy Act. And a number of states have very foolishly moved forward with ideas of uh, replicating what went on in California, but also in Australia, Europe, and the like, of uh-huh. um, really going very aggressive into green energy. And it's just been a disaster everywhere it's been tried uh, with blackouts, yeah. hot prices, energy poverty spiking. It's really bad for the environment, too, especially here in Virginia, when they're going to be plowing over some 770,000 acres, about uh, 12 times the size of New York City in our state, to be able to put in solar panels and wind turbines. Uh, And this is green energy. I mean, Mm -hmm. give me a break. Yeah. You know, many people would say you're pretty brave to show up at these hearings and give an alternative point of view. I mean, do you find that it's dangerous to you personally? No, uh, not really. I, 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 part of it is, is, I guess I have a, I think most of us at CFAC do a little bit of sass and uh, I'm not really, you know, I don't think that I'm, guess I fear too much physical harm. 
But um, yeah, we get shouted down all the time, meet him back with a smile. Uh, we're able actually, in some cases, I'll take like this uh, hearing I have tomorrow. They wanted the public to chime in. Uh, we put out an uh, email blast yesterday and, and it's just littered with things that are all on our side. So yeah. uh, two can play at that game. So one of the things we do with the college students, with the uh, grassroots, because remember, that's who, who backs us, is we mobilize them whenever we try to go and do these types of things. Yeah, And it's well, been very guess. impactful. Yeah, I would guess the environmentalists, some of them may be secretly admiring your courage and smiling back, no matter how aggressive and nasty they are. So you're happy warriors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a uh, I, I grew up in the Reagan era, so Reagan has always been kind of my hero. And uh, I, I, I think his style uh, really kind of goes through our organization, which is, uh, and he was funny. You know, you look back at the way that he uh, handled the left and that it was always done with wit, uh, grace. And uh, but, you know, we do like to need a lip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love the term happy uh, warrior that uh, Tom mentioned. I have a story of something that happened to me a few years ago. I was at a party sitting at a table of eight, a round table, having a discussion with a fellow at the other side of the table. Uh, talking about the difference between conservatives and liberals. And I mentioned that I had never uh, met a happy-go-lucky liberal. And a woman next to me stood up and screamed at me that she was a happy-go-lucky liberal. And everybody <laughs> fell out of their seats laughing. Now that, that is funny. And you'll notice that when we go to these UN meetings, we'll often put tables out and we're like the only uh sound science table in the entire place and you can always find ours in the uh, conference hall because that's the only place people are laughing and having a good time and as a matter of fact the left gathers there as much to engage us i guess because we are different but they also come there and they're very friendly <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. They, they, you could either go to their table and everybody's like uh you know with big frowns on their face, the end of the world's coming, we're all going to die, whatever the case is. And then you come to ours, you know, just the opposite, you know, we got yeah. a lot to live for. <laughs> there is no climate crisis and uh, the world's a great place. So, yeah. you know, it's funny because I, I grew up thinking that the left were tolerant of alternative points of view, different lifestyles, open ideas. I mean, what happened? I mean, were they ever really tolerant or have they actually changed? You know, I think uh, I hate to say that I mean, we get into these debates all the time. I actually do think that even back then, deep down inside, they didn't have the ability to uh, really shine forth. I think, unfortunately, now they do. They're, I, I think their true colors are coming out. They were always kind of mitigated in the past by the cultural norm of the day, which allowed for polite debate and uh, disagreement. I, I even remember liberals saying that back then that, I don't agree with what you're saying, Craig, but I agree with your right to say it. You don't hear that anymore. I don't even think they meant it back then, personally. <laughs> I think that they just didn't have the ability to shine forth the way they are right now with what they were. They scared me back then because I thought deep down that Al Gore back in the early 90s, I mean, you can read his first book uh, that he put out called Earth in the Balance. And on page two or three, he's advocating the idea that the media self-censor anybody who doesn't agree with them. This is like 1991. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think these ideas have been around for a while. 
So really independent thinkers are generally speaking, not on the left. They're people who are actually welcoming debate and discussion. They're more on the right. And no question. As I said, I, 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 people like to say you're just as bad. If you were had that ability, you'd shut them down. I say, no, I wouldn't. And I don't believe Tom would. And I don't believe Jay would. I think, uh, you know, that part of being a, a conservative or a libertarian is allowing everybody to have a voice at the table. I would be as much opposed to social media censoring, you know, kind of the foolish and silly ideas of my liberal friends as I would you know, them censoring our opinions. But I don't think that's shared in reverse, to be honest with you. I, I think deep down in their hearts, they're kind of glad we're, we're silenced. Mm, right. So, Craig, do you think that we're making progress against the climate scare? Or is it just kind of a static thing right now? This is something uh, Mark Morano and I discuss all the time. To answer that question, I would say on two fronts, uh, well, actually, I'd have to answer both yes and no. I think, sadly, on the fundamental question of whether people believe there is some sort of climate crisis, I think that people have uh, generally, uh, because they've only been taught this, believe there is a general climate crisis of some sort. Fortunately, they don't believe it too deep. It seems to be a mile wide and an inch deep, as I mentioned before, and they could easily be convinced the other way. This isn't some deep-seated uh, belief that you're trying to move. It's not an emotional issue, like let's say uh, the gay rights or abortion issue or something like that. It's more of a scientific issue. So I think people can be convinced to go the other way. On the positive side, I think that the success that the Greens have had in Europe is getting backlash. We saw it with the Gilets Jones a few years ago. We're seeing it just with people getting tired of high gas rates and that around the world and electricity rates and some of the failures that we see in California and what we just witnessed in Texas about a year ago. Mm-hmm. I think that these are serving us well and allowing us, such as when I testify tomorrow in Virginia, to be able to point to absolute abysmal failures that they've had. And I think that that's something to be optimistic about because some have foolishly listened to them. They now serve as a great case in point as to why we shouldn't be going that route. So I'm optimistic that there will be some pause uh, moving forward. And that's, that's to our benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there isn't any question about it. Uh, we have to win. It's a question of how much damage they do before the world wakes up to the fact that this is the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on mankind. But I'm seeing more and more very bright people who are kind of middle of the road uh, recognizing the fallacies of what the liberal Marxists are putting forth to scare uh, the public that uh, climate change is an existential threat. I'm seeing that we're coming back and there is cause for optimism. And uh, I've been writing a series on cfact.org. I think part one has been published. Part two will be published maybe next week. And I've outlined a third and a fourth. And it's not my opinions. It's other people's opinions, other people's data that's showing uh, the world is turning. It's only a question of how long it's going to take before the majority of the public wakes up to the fraud And as you point out, the evidence going on and the failures in Europe uh, and California and Texas last year are all working to convince people of what we're saying. And I think COVID has also helped in this regard, because uh, with the Greens freezing, the uh, slowdown of uh, activity, 
people not driving as much, being strapped at home, and they're they're saying this is a good thing, and uh, the industrial you know emissions lowering that people not working as much is good. I think that that's hurt their credibility with a lot of people, and uh, and you're seeing pushback to ideas like climate lockdowns. I mean, they were actually discussing that for a while. Let's have a climate lockdown after the COVID one goes away. I I don't I don't see that actually happening. I, I'm very encouraged when I see things like this big trucker thing that's going on in your country, Tom. And uh, I, I think that there's a lot of even liberals uh, that are starting to come out and uh, question all this. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I wonder is if as a result of the COVID scare and, you know, a lot of the things there, people are starting to become much more skeptical about official announcements from government, about, you know, the lobby groups, about the the extreme statements that we're hearing, do you think as a result of the COVID thing, when it's finally over, if it ever ends, do you think that people will be more skeptical about the climate scare and all these pronouncements from government? That's an excellent point, Tom. I absolutely do. I mean, we've heard so many uh, ridiculous claims by the CRCDC, uh, the World Health Organization, that just uh, completely didn't pan out. So uh, I, I do think that that is also a positive people are starting to differentiate, I think, between what is real science versus what are scientific bodies, you know, to some degree making pronouncements that they really don't have any idea what they're talking about and maybe even financially benefit from. Uh, I think that these are actually good things. And uh, the people driving science today are really suspect on a whole host of levels. And uh, the influence of China, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more that uh, this is all positive because one of the things we are battling against on the climate uh, issue is the science has spoken. Well, yeah, you know, we see how well that worked with COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So Craig, can you sum up what your plans are for 2022 and how our listeners can help? Absolutely. Well, we're going to continue doing what we're doing. We said, as I said before, we're going to these shareholder meetings and we're going to be uh, talking against some of the uh, wokeism and the environmental social governance. We're going to be still working aggressively to fight political correctness on campuses. Uh, We're going to be uh, trying to roll back some of these Green New Deal initiatives and uh, taking on the Biden administration and some of their climate pronouncements. Uh, so people can get involved and learn about these issues by joining us at cfact.org, that's C-F-A-C-T dot O-R-G. And if you go to that website, you'll see there's a place you can sign up for updates. And uh, we put out uh, emails all the time informing people how they can take action, how they can learn about the issues. Uh, we'll be producing some reports and that coming up in the coming year that I think people will take uh, take interest in. So Uh, I'm excited. I think it's going to be a great year ahead. And I I share Jay's optimism that I think uh, things will turn our direction at the by the end of 2022. Yeah, for sure. So that was a great show, Craig. Craig Rucker, president of the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow at cfact.org. And I encourage listeners to go to that website. You won't spend five minutes. You'll, you'll spend a lot longer. So this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lair signing out from the other side of the story.